Lord, we are so thankful that you are a good, good father. Lord, that you love your children, that you look after your children, that you provide for your children, God. Lord, we again just pray that you are here with us today. Lord, we just bask in your presence, God. Lord, we just pray now that you are working in the hearts of your people. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning again. Um, it's the Holden Show today. Um, running around a little bit crazy, everything, you know, in normal regen fashion. We're having tech issues all morning. Um, but it's good. It is good because God is good. Um, I just, again, wanted to say thank you for being here today. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for hopping in. If we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Holden. Um, I wear a few different caps around here. Um, I'm one of the youth leaders. I get to be one of the communicators, uh, the janitor, and your favorite church secretary. If this is your first time tuning in, we're in our series called Teach Us to Pray. We're going line by line through the Lord's Prayer and looking at different aspects of God and the way that they affect our prayer lives. Last week, we heard a great sermon from Mike about the way that the kingdom of God influences our life. This week, we are moving on to the next characteristic, which is God's provision. So if you will, please join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. We are using the version from the Jewish New Testament. Is it in there? Okay. Um, I will go ahead and I will read the Jewish New Testament version to you guys. Um, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen. So today our focus is on the line, give us the food we need today. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably saying, yes, Lord, give me the food because I skipped breakfast this morning. (laughs) But I just want to ask you guys just for about the next half hour or so uh, to just focus your mind as we focus on God's word. So the idea of provision is something that I've always struggled with. Um, I would say I grew up poor. Um, My family lived below the poverty line. My mom was a single mom of three boys. And if you know anything about boys, we can eat. (laughs) My mother used to say, you're going to eat us out of this house. 
My childhood wasn't filled with vacations or fun trips. Most of our fun came from hanging out with my cousins out in the woods trying to figure out which stick would make the best sword or which piece of wood would make for the best fort. And it was fun. But I grew up with this poverty mindset. This mindset that no matter what I do, no matter how hard I work, I will always be poor. This is a common stronghold in our area, in the area that we live, a common lie that we believe. And honestly, it's something that has affected the way that I view God's provision in my life. Looking back, I can count on one hand the number of times I have experienced a form of what I would call a miraculous provision. The oil money that showed up randomly on my, in the mail when my brother needed to repair our septic tank as a kid because a little part of the fracking company was taking oil from our property. The random Thanksgiving dinner that was just dropped off on our front porch when I got home from school one day. But what I can't count is the amount of times I've experienced provision in the mundane. You know, those moments where God just meets us right where we're at, the provision comes in the form of something normal. It's a little cliche, but my favorite illustration of this is the story of there's somebody, they're in their car, they're driving through a parking lot looking for a spot to park, and they can't find one, and so they start praying, Lord, help me find a parking spot. And right as they say that prayer, somebody backs out of a parking spot right at the front of the building, and they say, never mind, Lord, I got it. I found one. <laughs> Every time I think about this story, I laugh to myself. Because that was me for years. Constantly asking for provision, asking for ways to afford what I needed. But because the expectation was that it had to be this miraculous provision, I missed it. Things like the money showing up out of nowhere, someone saying, let me buy you dinner, let me help you pay for this problem, and they happened. I just couldn't see it for what it was. My mindset on provision had made it difficult to see God's provision even after experiencing it time and time again. When struggles come, I would tend to move back into my mindset of poverty that I just have to go in debt to fix these problems. I have to fix it as cheaply as possible and not the right way. That I can't have anything nice because there's always something that needs to be fixed. Things don't go as I plan, and I would begin to doubt God's provision in my life. I begin to feel afraid that I won't be able to recover or make it through the problem. Or in the words of the Tiger King, I'm never going to financially recover from this. This isn't a new problem, though. In the Bible, we see time where people of faith are expecting God to provide something specific for them, and when that provision doesn't happen quickly or doesn't happen in the way that they think or expect it to, they lean back on their, themselves. And this is what happens to Elijah 
in 1 Kings 19. So go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 19 in your Bible while I give us just a little bit of background up to this point. See, up to this point in time, Ahab was king of Israel. Uh, he was married to Jezebel, uh, a Phoenician princess. And Ahab was not a very good king for Israel. He reigned for 22 years, and the Bible says in those 22 years, he did more evil than the kings before him. His wife led him to worship and serve Baal, and he led Israel astray. During his reign, the prophet Elijah predicted a drought. Um, no rain or dew would show up until Elijah said so. And after three and a half years, Elijah returns to Israel, summons Ahab and the prophets of Baal to an old western showdown on Mount Carmel. And up there, Elijah proves that Jehovah is God over Israel. He wins the contests, predicts rain, and has Baal's prophets killed. And after this prediction, he heads off to Jezreel to meet with Ahab and Jezebel about the events that just took place. And that is where we pick up in 1 Kings 19. So look with me at verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So let's take a moment and just think about how Elijah was feeling when he got to Jezreel. He had just successfully proven that God, Jehovah, was Lord over Israel. King Ahab and the prophets had agreed that if, you know, if God burns the altar and, and answers, that he would be Lord over Israel. He was ready for, Elijah was ready for Israel to return back to God, to repent and believe in God. Yet when he gets to the city of Jezreel, instead of seeing repentance, what he receives is a threat from the queen. Elijah will be killed in the next 24 hours. And what does this mighty man of God do? He runs. His faith fails him. Despite knowing and seeing what God has done previously in his life, the provision in chapter 17 of the crows bringing him food and the water during the drought, despite seeing God rain fire down on a wet altar, his faith fails him and he runs. He runs from the kingdom of Israel into Judah, but that's not even far enough. The prophet runs even further. He goes another day out into the wilderness. 
Now, at first glance, we would assume that he runs into the wilderness to just hide. Many scholars believe that that is not necessarily the case as to what's going on here. Um, They say that that's part of his plan, was to hide. But what he was looking to do was to commune with God. We see throughout the Bible multiple people who run into the wilderness seeking after God, seeking for a moment uh, to meet with him and have him lead them where they need to go. And at this moment in Elijah's life, he doesn't know what else to do. He has done his best to follow after God and lead Israel back, but he had failed. Charles Spurgeon says, Elijah failed in the very point at which he was strongest. And that is where most men fail. In scripture, it is the wisest man who proves himself to be the greatest fool, just as the meekest man, Moses, spoke hasty and bitter words. Abraham failed in his faith and Job in his patience. So he who was the most courageous of all men fled from an angry woman. Understandable. It seems that when people of great magnitude fail, it comes from a place of reliance on their own strength, rather on God's strength. At this moment, Elijah is feeling overwhelmed. He's feeling depressed, even wishing he would die. Like, the dude is done. He's ready to quit, ready to give up. He doesn't want to continue doing what he's been called to do. He's frustrated that that despite what he has done, the outcome is not what he wanted or what he had expected. He knew what God was doing. He knew what God could do. But the events that had taken place in verses 1 through 4 have shaken this prophet to his core. Because he wasn't expecting it. His faith was placed on his knowledge of God not in God. Often this is the cause of feelings of despair in our own lives as Christians when we seem to lose hope and courage because things aren't going or didn't go the way we had hoped or expected. The cause of frustration and depression we feel isn't because God's not doing something. Rather, it's the feeling that God's doing something but we don't like how it looks. And because of this, our faith hits rock bottom. We step out of our calling, we throw up our hands in defeat. And that feeling of despair takes root in our hearts. And it isn't just because of an unexpected event, but also because of an unsuspected trust in ourselves. Now we can see a few characteristics that come with this feeling of despair, and they're seen in the first four verses. The first characteristic is fear. When Elijah received his threat, he got up and fled out of fear. As a Christian, as Christians, we are not meant to live in fear. Second Timothy 1.7, for we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus telling people to not be afraid. I once read a definition for being a Christian 
And it says, to be one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. Now, a Christian could only be this if they're living out of the indwelling inadequacy of Jesus in their life. Jesus is completely fearless. But in our lives, fear is frequent. At least in mine, anyways. Just as it was frequent in Elijah's life and other prophets that we see in the Bible. We are afraid to face the circumstances that we are in, to face what is in front of us. But Jesus, on multiple occasions, reminds the disciples to fear not. Because we have nothing to fear when we trust in God. But there lies part of the problem for us and Elijah. When we stop trusting in our living God and begin trusting in ourselves, fear begins to creep in. The second characteristic of despair is unreasonableness. Elijah finds himself in the desert, running away from a death threat, throws up his hands and prays for death. Like, Elijah, if you wanted to die, you could have just stayed in Jezreel. You wouldn't have had to run all that distance. Elijah doesn't see a problem with it, though. His words and his actions are inconsistent and contradictory. When we turn from faith to fear, we find ourselves becoming illogical and unreasonable. I've been there. I can be a very unreasonable person when I allow fear to creep into my life. Allowing my words and actions not to match up, and I find no issue with it. The final, the final characteristic we see is self-pity. It is enough. It is enough, Elijah says. Really, this is just a fancy way of Elijah saying, I give up. I'm tired of these circumstances. Please take this away from me. Have you ever been there? I remember one morning going out to the car to, get into, to go to work. And as I sat down, I felt the, a pop, and the car just dropped. The struts on my car had broken as I got into it. It was an old car, it was an 08, it's like over 10, year old, 10 years old at this point. And I was livid. I had just fixed the car previously, like two or three weeks before. Felt like it was a continuous thing in my life, was repairs on cars. And I was frustrated because I was watching the other people in my life just be blessed with free cars. Here, a new car for you. A new car for you. And I'm over here every week on my hands and knees underneath of a vehicle fixing it and repairing it. And I was angry. Like, God, I'm doing what you've asked me to. I'm working part-time because you've called me into ministry. I'm giving everything I have but I'm not getting a blessing. I'm continuously sacrificing for you, but everyone else is getting stuff when I do more. I remember looking at Heather and saying, I am so over this. Why is everyone else getting cars when I'm doing everything God asks me to? 
And of course, I could write a whole sermon on that statement alone. But I was at the end of my rope. I didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to be done with ministry because I was tired of the suffering that came with it. Elijah was tired of the suffering. He was feeling like he had no more resources. He felt like he had reached the end of his ministry, that he had taken his own share of the load. Now it was someone else's turn. The problem with that, when we feel we have run out of resources, we tend to forget that we aren't doing this on our resources, but God's. So I've talked a lot about the spare but how does that correlate to God's provision? Well, the cure for our despair is found in God's provision. Look with me at verses 5 through 18. It's going to be just a little bit longer, so just bear with me. Verse 5 reads, Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head... He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out, and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. As we look at these verses, we can see that God is providing for Elijah. That God is protecting Elijah. That he is responding to Elijah, not with chastisement, anger, or reprimand. 
Rather, God offers up a cure to Elijah's despair. He offers up a cure for this discouraged prophet. We can see God meets and provides for Elijah in multiple ways. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We see how God meets Elijah and us in each of these areas in our lives. Verses 5 through 7 is when Elijah is laying under the broom tree and an angel from the Lord wakes him up and feeds him twice. After Elijah hits rock bottom, he gives up and he lays down to sleep. And during that sleep, an angel wakes him, tells him to eat and drink a second time to eat and drink. See, God allows Elijah to rest instead of insisting that he just tries harder. God gives Elijah food and drink. There are times in our lives where we are feeling overwhelmed, when we're ready to give up, that really all we need is a nap. I love naps. See, Spurgeon says that the spirit needs to be fed, and the body needs feeding also. Do not forget these matters. It may seem to some people that I ought not mention such small things as food and rest, but these may be the very first elements in really helping a poor, depressed servant of God. God meets our physical needs first because sometimes we aren't open to receiving anything else from him before that. When our bodies are tired and hungry, sometimes it's difficult to hear from God. If you have small children or have raised small children, you know that nap time is important. One thing I have noticed <laughs> is that when Chloe, my daughter, the little redhead that you saw running around when you were coming in today, um, doesn't get a nap, the word no is the only thing that is in her vocabulary. The only thing. It's easier to listen and do what God wants when our physical well-being is taken care of. And the good news is that even when we feel like we can't make the journey because we have hit the end of our strength, God is there to give us the strength to carry on. If we look at verse 7, and I love how the ESV phrases it, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. For the journey is too great for you. Not too great for God, but on your own strength, it's too great. The journey we are on as followers of Jesus is too great for us by ourselves. But God is walking this journey with us and providing for us as we go. We see God providing emotionally for Elijah by Elijah's journey to Mount Horeb or another name, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. The mountain that God revealed himself to Moses, the mountain that he covenanted with Israel. This mountain would have been extremely significant to the followers of God including Elijah, who in these moments struggled to see how God was working. And we can see 
that Elijah's journey to Mount Sinai mirrored aspects of the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. He traveled for 40 full days, mirroring the Israelites' 40-year journey in the wilderness. He found a cave and hid there. And now while that might seem like, oh, okay, he's in a mountain, caves. But some scholars believe that because of the use there, the cave is the same crevice that Moses found him in, himself in when God passed before him. God had brought Elijah to the same place that he met with Moses, a reminder of who God is and a reminder of the adequacy of God and his power. Now, the spiritual aspect of God's provision comes in the way that he responds to Elijah. We see that when Elijah meets God at the cave, God asks Elijah what he's doing here. Now, we can look at this question two ways. We can put, either put the emphasis on the word doing, and it's like, you know, what you doing? Or we can put the emphasis on here, and the question's more, what are you doing here? Either way we look at this, Elijah doesn't actually answer the question. He instead lays out his story of woe. God then has Elijah go out and God, and he answers the prophet through a manifestation of his power. He causes a strong wind to come, but God wasn't in the wind. He causes an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. He causes a fire, but God was not in the fire. There are times in which God is in the wind, such as Pentecost. There are times when God is in the earthquake, when Paul and Silas were freed from the prison. There are times when God is in the fire, like the time he lit the fire for Elijah on Mount Carmel. But more often than not, God is in the small voice, in the stillness of silence. God's spiritual provision comes in the form of a reminder for Elijah that he is always there. Even when the circumstances seem to be out of his control, when everything is out of control, when the world seems to be against everything that is God, when it seems God can't move or won't move, when it seems God isn't doing anything, that is where he is, and that is where he is moving in that stillness. And that is how God is providing for Elijah spiritually. He reminds Elijah that though it doesn't seem like God is moving in this moment, that it seems like Israel is done, that God's still moving. He lets Elijah know that he is still in control. Sometimes in our lives, we are so close to a circumstance that we can't see how God is providing for us. Earlier, I had mentioned how frustrated and angry I was because it seemed that everyone around me was getting a new car and I was constantly repairing mine. Looking back now, though, I can see how God was providing for me in that time. I had been given the capability and the skills to be able to crawl underneath of a car and fix it. I had the funds in my bank account to be able to buy the parts that I needed to fix my car, even though it was breaking almost on a weekly basis. His provision was there, but I was just so frustrated and so close to the problem 
and I wanted his provision to look a certain way, I wasn't able to see his provision. I wasn't able to respond to God's provision with gratefulness, with gratitude. Elijah, despite seeing and hearing God's response, still didn't understand. God asked Elijah a second time what he was doing here, and Elijah responds word for word what he had said earlier. I'd zealously followed after God, and yet they're trying to kill me, and I'm the only one left. When God asks Elijah what he's doing here, he is asking what Elijah's problem is. He wants to know what Elijah is doing. And Elijah's responses aren't answer. The answer is that he's not doing anything. Elijah is unable to see past his circumstances. He doesn't understand what God is doing. Elijah doesn't see what God's resources are. And so God's response the second time is to show Elijah exactly what his resources are. There's going to be two new kings. I'm going to give another prophet. And I have 7,000 Israelites who have not turned away from me. God's resources aren't limited. We can sometimes feel like we have used up all the resources that we've been given, but God's resources are unlimited. And when we are on a journey with God, he will continuously gift us those resources for a reason. God provides for us to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our faith when we are struggling with unbelief. When we think we can't go on, God brings restoration to our faith so that we may continue fulfilling the call he has on our lives. If God had not provided for Elijah and instead answered his prayer for death, Elijah would not have finished out his ministry. He would not have been able to experience the blessing of the chariots of fire taking him up to heaven. He would not have been able to anoint and be with Elisha. God provides for us so that our faith is strengthened in circumstances that seem hopeless and full of despair. When we receive God's provision, our faith is built up, and out of that provision, God receives praise. As we are able to express our thankfulness for God's provision in our lives, our prayer lives continue to grow, and we are able to see God's daily provision easier. See, Psalm 65 reads... You crown the year with a bountiful harvest. Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture, and the hillsides blossom with joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks of sheep, and the valleys are carpeted with grain. They all shout and sing for joy. God's provision is a cause for us to worship him and praise his name. It allows us to express gratitude for God. And as we experience, experience circumstances outside our control, as we experience our breaking points, are we taking time to commune with God and experience his provision, or are we just trying to hide away from the circumstance? God wants to provide for us. Sometimes it just takes a moment for us to sit in the stillness of God 
and look at how he is providing for us so that we can express gratitude for who he is and the love that he has for us.